It's the People Make Things podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Christopher Natsume. I'm a game developer, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a podcaster, and I don't know, I'm a bunch of other stuff. The internet knows me better as Nine Squirrels. So I want to talk about something, and I'm going to jump right into it. I want to talk about why I hate Facebook, and I'm going to get right to the point. I have a number of people that I have met in my you know, travels on this earth that I have added to my Facebook that have different opinions than me. And I, I, try, to, I try to keep people around me that have different opinions from me. And in growing up in you know, Republican Dallas, as I did, um, traveling to, you know, places like Korea and Japan and Germany and Scotland and, and, you know, living in different areas. Obviously I've, I've, I've met a lot of different people and there are people on my Facebook book who, you know, come from all around the world. There are people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and religions and philosophies about life. But there's, there's a particular, and I, and I, I try very hard not to censor these people, right? Because I, I want those people in my life. I want to know that I'm surrounded by people who don't necessarily exactly share my opinions, who, uh, will call me out and say, Hey, you have this bias or you have this way of thinking. And that comes from, you know, some biases that you have. And, and let me show you another side of things. This is an important part of being a human. This is an important part of being an intellectual is having your ideas and beliefs questioned by people who genuinely don't agree with you. This is important, but there's a particular group of people. There's a particular group of people who have been annoying the shit out of me on Facebook lately. And I refuse to take them off my Facebook. I refuse to edit them. But I wanted to respond to them, and I wanted to respond to them with something longer than, you know, I, I don't want to type this all out. I don't, it would be a book, and I don't want to type this book. So I want to, I want to share an experience. Um, and, and the people I want to talk about, the, these people are, uh, well, they're libertarians. They're, they're people who uh, have this sort of libertarian, uh, the government should stay out of my life, uh, everyone should stay out of my life, I should be free to do whatever I want to do and, and chase my happiness in the way that I want to chase it, and we should allow the free market to take care of everything because that's all going to be okay. And I get it. I get it. I get where these people are coming from. I, I want the government out of a bunch of my life, too. I don't want the government telling me what drugs I can take. I don't want the government telling me what I can say or do or who I can sleep with. I don't want the government telling me uh, what sort of things I can think. I, I, I can see where they're coming from. I intellectually get their point of view. But there's a certain sort of economics that comes with this. And the economics that comes with this, and, and I, I think sort of the patron saint of this these economics, of course, is Ayn Rand, right? And everybody, oh, he's going to talk Ayn Rand. I, I am going to talk Ayn Rand for just a second because I think there is, everyone kind of goes through this period in their life. And I think they go through this period in their life because they come from a certain position of privilege. And yes, I use the word privilege and please don't fucking tune me out and think I'm going to get all white privilege about things right now. But the, the point is, I want to give you a quote. I want to give you a quote from Ayn Rand. And, and this, this, I think, gets to the real heart of the, the sort of economic libertarian view of the universe. And, and, and the quote goes like this. Civilization is the progress towards a society of privacy. The savage's whole existence is public, ruled by the laws of his tribe. Civilization is the process of setting man free from men. That's, that's of course, Ayn Rand. And... 
I get where she's coming from. I get kind of the point. I get, you know, if you look historically at things and you say, yeah, there was a history where you or everyone was forced to be part of the Catholic Church or you got burned at the stake or, you know, the society where, you know, if you were gay, then, you know, you had to be, you know, killed because you're, you know, you didn't fit in and blah, blah. I, I get it, right? I get that. But we take this to this sort of economic libertarian view and we start talking about how the government needs to stay out of everybody's lives. And, and this, this thing, this, this has become an important part of um, the debate in America right now and the debate worldwide, quite honestly, about how we're going to function, how we're going to build governments, how we're going to organize our, our, our lives. And, you know, obviously, for those of you who have been paying attention to American politics, this has become a particularly important issue lately in American politics with a new budget that was proposed by uh, the government. And, and it was a budget that, that, that cut out a lot of these sort of government projects. And uh, one of the big things that got cut, obviously, was the NEA, which, you know, supports uh, the public broadcasting, it supports the operas and museums and all kinds of arts throughout America. So as a, as a working artist and entertainment professional, I, I kind of looked at this and I'm, I have, I have experience, uh, working with, with organizations that were funded by the NEA. I used to work for the Austin Lyric Opera and the Austin Ballet. Um, I worked in theater for many years. Um, and even, even video games at some level are supported by, uh, at, at some level, uh, by grants from the NEA. There are people who went to colleges that were, uh, given those sort of grants, there's people who, you know, I, I've certainly gone to, uh, anyway, the point being, um, this, this idea of the self-made man seems to be at the heart of everything. The, the idea that if something has value, people will pay for it. The idea that we can pull our, our society from, allowing the the free invisible hand to do its work and to allow capitalism to uh, allow profits to increase and the greater profits means greater wealth for everybody this 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 way of thinking it it holds a lot of it holds a lot of lure but it holds a lot of lure for people who don't really understand how the world works and I could give example after example, but I want to give one very, very specific example, a thing that happened to me a few years ago. And I had, I had had a lot of these intellectual beliefs before, but I think they were really solidified by this, this, this one experience I had. I want to share it with you. I was in Indonesia. And as many of you know, I run a game company. I have people from all around the world. I have a bunch of people in Indonesia, and I wanted to go down and visit them because I hadn't met them before. I wanted to see what they were like and, you know, have dinner with them and shake their hands and whatnot. And so I wanted to go down and have like a real experience, not just like one night, but I wanted to go down and spend a few days and really get to know these guys. And so the problem was they are from all over the island of Java. Um, I have people in, in at the time in Yogya and in uh, Jakarta and Bandung in Surabaya, you know, so all over the island of Java. And I thought Yogya is relatively central and it's supposed to be nice. And let's go check that out. So I actually rented a villa, uh, sort of a little bit on the outskirts of this, this, you know, mid-sized Indonesian city called Yogyakarta. And I went to go visit the team. And we, th this, this villa that we rented, it was this beautiful place and it had the, you know, nice big pool and the, these kind of tropical, you know, rooms. It was, it was just really, really nice. And we sat around and, and enjoyed, you know, each other's company and we talked about the company and we talked about where we wanted to go and our lives and all this other. It was a really wonderful experience. 
and it was it was a, a great experience to kind of get into the, the 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 lives of the people that that lived in Indonesia to see what you know life in in suburban Indonesia is actually like. Uh, which, by the way, if you're wondering what life in suburban Indonesia is like, very Muslim. Um, that's that's what it's like. Uh, surprisingly Muslim. Uh, if you don't want to wake up to the call of prayers at you know 5:30 in the morning. I have some bad news for you. You're going to be waking up to the call of prayers at 5:30 in the morning. And the first time it happened, I, it, I you know, I'd been to Malaysia before and I I'd, I'd heard the the prayer call in the mornings before, but it always been sort of down the street somewhere and something that, you know, if you had thick windows you could kind of sleep through. But this was a loud and and I was I for whatever reason this this place that we were at was right at sort of the the epicenter of like three mosques and every mosque had its own big huge loudspeaker and the big huge loudspeaker at each one of those mosques went off at exactly the same time but not exact but they weren't saying the same prayer like like because they had different guys reading the prayer i guess i think it's probably the same prayer but there were there were three different dudes reading it and the three different dudes reading it did it at sort of different cadences so they kind of didn't match up so, and, but they were all at the exact same time. And so you heard it from like three different directions, right? But there's another one over here. Right? And, and, and they, they turned into this and one of the speakers was broken and, and it was, and I don't know what was wrong with it, but it just went. And so you've got from like two or three speakers and then from one speaker and every morning that would go and and it was just, just this blasting and you're just like, God damn, make it stop. It's making my head hurt. And I, I swear to God, like by the second day, I was about ready to walk, walk over to that mosque and be like, I will pay whatever it costs to fix your speaker. Like, let, let's go to the store right now. You and I, we're going to buy a new speaker. I'll, I know how to wire shit. I'll help you figure it out. Let's get you a new speaker because I, I can't take, and I don't know how long that had been doing that. It had been doing that a really long time. And nothing against Muslims, but dude, fix your speaker, right? I mean, if you're going to, if you can have a call to prayer, let's at least have it be prayer and not like horrible, evil static at crazy volumes. I, I but anyway, I digress. Um, it was a very interesting experience, and and at one point I thought to myself, I'd like to go see some of the countryside, and I knew that there was this uh, this Buddhist temple complex nearby called Borobudur, and it's very famous. Uh, it's kind of like the Angkor Wat of, of Java, I guess. It's this enormous uh, stupa-like uh, pyramid thing covered in Buddhas and whatnot. It's a very cool place. And I'd, I'd seen pictures of it, and it was just up the road. And so I thought, hey, let's let's rent a minivan. Let's go check it out. So we um, we loaded everybody up in the minivan, and we, we started driving down there. And we're going down this road, and it was something like, I don't know, it, was, it was a couple hour drive to get there. And along the way, we started, the, the road turns into a one lane road because somebody had destroyed the other side of the road, some sort of construction job, right? And so we're, we're going and we must have gone through 10 or 15 miles of construction on the left hand side of the road while we were driving sort of on the shoulder of the road. And then we reached the bit where, you know, I guess this construction team had been working its way down the road. So we got to the construction team that had destroyed the road for the last 10 or 15 miles. And I've never seen anything like it. There must have been a thousand people there, um, easily a thousand. And there was no machinery. There were no, you know, there were some pickup trucks, but there were, there was no, 
no bulldozers, no front end loaders, no nothing like that. No, no caterpillar. You know what there was was like a thousand guys, butt naked except for sandals and little polyester short shorts, and every one of them as gray as a statue, just covered in road dust and dirt and sweat and filth. And each one of them had a piece of steel rebar about a foot long and like a claw hammer. Like you'd go down to Handy Dan and buy like a, just a cheap-ass claw hammer. And they were all kneeling in the dirt on this old road, destroying the road by using the, the rebar and claw hammers as as like chisels, right? Just bit by bit. And every, every you know... 10 minutes they they managed you know each individual manages to destroy about a foot of old concrete and you know throw it off in the jungle to the side of the road and they had this is how they had destroyed this road and how they were continuing to destroy this road and every one of them sort of butt naked just just covered in dirt and filth all of them just under this blazing you know 95 degree sun 90 percent humidity no shade tropic heat you know, just just baking in in the brutal heat, doing hard physical labor, kneeling over with with no safety precautions, no nothing, just just that. That's what they had. And I thought about the last ten or fifteen miles of road that I had seen, and I wondered, one foot at a, at the time with you know this this group of I don't know seven hundred thousand people. How long did it take them to do that? And after that, we kept going down this road, and the road didn't have any turnoffs or anything. It was just through the road through the jungle, and it it went for you know through the plantations and whatnot. And the road continued going for another forty miles, and it was clear that they were going to be destroying this road for another forty fifty miles. And I thought, how long does it take these guys to destroy another fifty miles worth of road? with claw hammers and steel rebar how long does that take this this for these guys this is a job that's probably going to take them six months a year how long i mean think about what you've done in the last year well these guys for a year are going to go sit under the heat and destroy that road with claw hammers that's what they're going to do for that year and we we got to Bora Bora and we had a good time and we, you know, we had some sodas and we walked around and we went and, you know, climbed the steps and thought, ooh, it's so hot to be climbing these steps in this heat. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit and we looked at the, the souvenirs and we got back in the van and on the van on the way home, we passed those dudes again. And the whole time we were out having a good time enjoying ourselves, they were there squatting next to the road, destroying it with claw hammers and iron rebar. And... I turned to the guys in the van, um, I think it was actually on the way out, and I said, wow, they, what do you guys think about that? You know, because it, it really shocked me. I'd never, I mean, I'd, I'd, I knew poverty existed. I'd seen poverty in my life. I'd been in the developing world before. It was my first trip to the circus, but I'd never really just seen anything like that in my life. And I turned to them, I said, well, what, guys, what do you think of that? And they were like, what do we, what do we think of what? I'm like, that, I pointed out the window, and they're like, what, the, the road workers? And I'm like, yeah, the fact that those road workers are working in completely unrealistic conditions and they're, and they were like, well, that's, that's how we build roads down here. You know? And I, I thought to myself about a time earlier, I had been in Singapore and I had been having lunch with my friend, Alan, and we had been look while I was having lunch, I was looking out the window and I saw this just line of laborers and every one of them had a, 
a weed whacker, like a strap on your back weed whacker. And they were just lined up in like a big patrol line and they were mowing the yard, not the edges of the yard or around the difficult bits, but right in the center of this great big, you know, yard in Singapore, they were just mowing it with weed whackers, just, you know, back and forth, this big, huge patrol line of guys marching across the, the thing. And I, and I looked at Alan, I said, that is an incredibly inefficient way to mow a yard. Why don't they get a, they got like a riding lawnmower or something. They do this without the couple hundred dudes. And Alan looked at me and said, well, the, the hundred dudes are cheaper than the riding lawnmower. And I thought at the time, this is the invisible hand. This is the, this is capitalism. Capitalism has decreed that those hundred people's lives with those, those, those weed whackers, it has less value than the, the, the riding lawnmower, the, you know, $2,000 big riding lawnmower. And then I thought, well, down in Indonesia, where human life just simply has a lot lower value, those thousand guys with claw hammers were 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 more economically viable than you know a couple big caterpillar trucks. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of fucked up, you know. That's but and I I got to thinking about it. I did some research after this. I I, I did some some thought process, and I I thought about the 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 whole self-made man concept, right? And I thought about what is it that we're actually made from? How are we actually made? And we're made on the labor of these guys, right? Because they're not just out there building a road in Indonesia. These are the same guys that are working in a, in a mine in China. These are the same guys that are working in a textile mill in Bangladesh or India, these are the same guys that are that are finding the rare earth materials that go into our iPhones, and all of them are in these kind of conditions. And all of them, you know, it, there's no there's no there's no labor union for these guys. There's no work and safety people. If one of those guys, you know, smashes his hand on the rebar with a hammer, there's not some guy who's going to come and say, "Well, okay, you got workers' comp, file a claim." No, that guy goes the fuck home, and he doesn't get to work because he's got a fucked up hand, and he doesn't get to do this shit anymore. And now the one little tiny bit of money that he was making doing this back-breaking, exhausting labor, and you know he's not making much money because he was cheaper than buying a fucking Caterpillar truck, him and a thousand guys like him. So that's that's where we get our stuff, right? The shirt that you're wearing right now, the shoes that you walk around in, they're, they're built on this. They're built on this labor. And, and I hesitate to call it slave labor until I did some more research. And I found out that, you know, because I, I did back then. I, I thought, how does, and I spent some time thinking about how these systems worked. And I spent some time, and I've spent much time over the last few years researching this. And I want to share some of my, some of what I've learned. I, I went today and I looked up some real numbers for the kind of stuff that I, I've been thinking about. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but slavery is still actually a thing. Not like a little thing that happens a little bit. But right now, the United Nations estimates that somewhere between 27 to 30 million people are still functionally slaves. Now, to keep that in perspective, that's more people than were slaves back when America had slaves. Back when we actually still enslaved black people in America, the entire world did not have 30 million slaves. We have more slaves right now than we did back then. How many people is 30 million people? It's almost all of Canada. Imagine we just enslaved Canada, except for like, you know, Vancouver. They, they take six million off. So so all of Canada, except for Vancouver, is actually enslaved. 
right? That's how many people we're talking. Of course, they're not in Canada. Some of them are in Canada, sex slaves and whatnot, but, but, but most of them aren't in Canada. So we don't see it and we don't think about it because they're in places like Bangladesh and India and Uzbekistan and China where we don't have to look at them and we don't have to see them unless we go down there and take a trip to Bora Bodor, right? And, and you say, well, I don't know you saw those guys. There were no chains on those guys. They weren't slaves. Yeah, they, there weren't no chains, but they were slaves. And the way the slavery works is it's called being a bonded laborer. And for, you know, I know a lot of you guys know how this works, but I'll walk through it. The, the idea is that somebody is in such terrible conditions that they got to go take out a loan. And, you know, maybe grandpa is sick and he needs cancer medication and you can't get it. So you got to take a loan out. And the only place that will give you a loan because you're already poor and you don't have anything to guarantee the loan. So, of course, a bank's not going to give you a loan and nobody loans you money for medical care. Right. So you go to some loan shark. The loan shark says, sure, I can give you a loan under this exorbitant interest rates. And the interest rates are designed so that there's no possible way at the rate that you work at that you can earn this money back. And in many cases, those loans are actually coming from the exact same organizations that are next going to bond you into labor. And so now you're going to work and every month you earn $100 and the interest on your loan is $120. So every month you owe an extra $20 and your loan gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you keep working and it never fucking ends. And you do this until you die. And when you die, that loan gets passed on to your family and your kids are born into this. And this happens all around the world. And, and in, in some cases, it's a sizable percentage of the population. In, in Cambodia, for instance, almost 2% of the entire nation of, Can- of Cambodia is involved in this form of slavery, right? It also happens with migration. It happens with uh, people who, uh, when I was in Nepal, for instance, I remember I went to a number of places in Nepal, little villages up in the mountains. And I remember saying to my friend Jawant, who I was hiking with, um, and Jawant is a, a local Nepali who knows quite a lot about Nepal. I said, well, where are all the men? Where are the young men in these villages? And he said, well, the young men in these villages don't stay here because there's there's no cash to be earned here. And so they actually go to Kathmandu and they, they bond themselves to companies that send them to the Middle East where they basically work as slaves. And they 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 can send a little bit of money home. And because that little bit of money home seems to be enough to get them out of the financial hardships that they have right now, they do it. But in many cases, they, they, they're taken advantage of, their passports are taken from them, they're treated you know, terribly, they're beaten, they're, they're, they're put in places where you know, no human being should live, they're not given water, they die in the heat. Um, all kinds of terrible shit happens to them. Uh, and, and essentially, these guys are slaves. And these... The, the, and, and, and before you start thinking, well, you know, well, I guess they shouldn't have taken those loans and I guess they shouldn't have done that. I guess they should have thought better. Let's be very clear. 26%, according to the UN, 26% of these slaves are children. These are people who they had no choice in this. They were born into this. This is their lives. They were born into it. It's what they were born into. It's what they'll do when they're middle-aged. It's what they'll do when they're old. And, you know, that's, that's, that's life for these kids. And, and you can say, well, I guess their parents shouldn't have had kids or blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, you know what? If we're going to have that argument, just fuck you because you're a heartless human being and I can't, I can't talk to you anymore because you have absolutely no compassion for how human beings live. Um, but I want to ask this question. How long are these guys going to have to work? How long are they going to have to toil like this? How are they going to have to function to get to where I am, 
right? Because this is how they started. They started in crippling poverty. They started with parents that were bonded laborers. They started with huge debts on their heads. They started in places that they didn't have access to education. They didn't have access to clean drinking water. They got sick when they were kids. They didn't have access to vaccinations. All Everything fucking going against them, right? Now me, I know where I started. I started in a relatively prosperous suburb of Dallas. I had public education. I had uh, insurance. I had uh, two college-educated parents. I had a father who, who was an engineer who was paid relatively well to be an engineer. I had a vacation home from the time I was 15 years old. We literally had a second house just for the, just for the, just for the shits and giggles of having somewhere else to go for half the year. Right? This is where, where I came from. And I'm I'm proud of myself. I've worked hard. I built a business, and I I you know I help help pay my way through through undergraduate. I, I paid my own way through graduate school, um, with with the help of student loans and whatnot. But I was given so many advantages, so many advantages from the time I was a kid compared to these people, and and so many advantages even when I was an adult. I mean, when I went to graduate school, I was under state medical care. And my, my my son was born under state medical care. And under state medical care, I didn't have to pay for him to be born. My son was born with a cleft lip, big, huge hole in the front of his face that was fixed for, for free by the state. Um, if I had lived in India and I had been that, I had the exact same situation that happened to me in India and I were a migrant laborer, there wouldn't have been state health care to fix his cleft lip. There wouldn't have been. He would still have it right now. And that would be some shit he had to deal with. The, the, the advantages that I've had as a human being boggle the imagination and you wonder how long do those guys working on that road how long have they got to do that to get to where i am right now and the answer is accepting some sort of crazy stroke of luck the answer is forever they would have to work an infinite amount of time to get to where i am right now barring some and and here's the thing. Some people, I know, somebody will be like, well, Chris, well, what about so-and-so? What about this guy who was raised in the slums and he's now the head of a blah-de-blah and blah-blah-blah-blah. Someone somewhere is going to have some story about some rags. And we love these stories. We love these rags and riches stories. We love the story of the kid who pulled himself up by his bootstraps and paid his way through college and blah-blah-blah. And, and good on him. Good on that guy, right? But we love those stories because they're the exception. We love those stories because they don't happen very much. If that was the usual circumstance, we wouldn't write books about it. He wouldn't have his own feel-good movie because we don't make feel-good movies about people who just do okay, right? The vast majority of people born into that condition and born into that situation, even though they work hard, and those guys who we passed on that street with those claw hammers, they were working really fucking hard. They'll work, they're working harder than I've ever worked in my life or ever will work in my life. And they're still probably going to live that life and that life only for the rest of their lives, and they're going to pass that on to their next generations, and that's, that's going to be the way life is for them. That's the reality. And I remember I used to get, I, I came away from that a little bit pissed off. And I remember I was a little bit pissed off uh, at Indonesia. I was a little pissed off like, wow, how can you have this going on in your country and not do anything about it? And then I realized what a fucking douchebag I was. And I realized, why is this an Indonesian problem? Why do I say, you know, go look in the inside of your shirt. Look at the label inside your shirt. Where was your shirt made? Where was the cotton for that shirt made? It's probably made in India. 
by people working under these conditions. Go look up where the rare earth materials inside of your, your iPhone come from. They come from Chinese mines and people who work under these conditions. The, 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 that cheap-ass shrimp that you bought at the store, it comes from slaves. It comes from Burmese slaves that fish in the islands in, in Southeast Asia. And they're literally chained to the boat slaves. I mean, and I could go on example after example after example. You walk around your house and so much of your prosperity, so much of your wonderful, happy consumer lifestyle is based on slavery. It's based on real, live, honest-to-God slaves working in slave conditions, building things that you use. So how the hell am I supposed to get pissed off at Indonesians for allowing this to happen how am I supposed to get pissed off at, at Filipinos or or at Indians or at Malaysians for allowing this shit to happen? How am I supposed to get pissed off at the Chinese government for allowing this to happen when all of this is the foundation level for the economy that we live in? So why am I talking about all this? Why, why does all this matter? Wow, this is a real fucking downer, Chris. I'm talking about all of this because when you start having these discussions about we should start getting rid of public services, when we start saying, hey, let's get rid of the, the NEA and let's get rid of public transit and let's change the health care plan so that you know people pay for their own health care, blah, blah, blah. When we start saying that the government isn't capable of doing things and we should let private industry take over. I've been to the world where the private industry is allowed to run amok without any interference at all from the government or labor unions or, or any of that shit. And it's not a happy place. It's not a good place. And I would argue that civilization, the, the march of civilization is not the march towards a more privatized world. I've seen a privatized world, and I wouldn't call it particularly civilized. It's full of slaves. I would argue that a march towards civilization looks a lot more like a march towards a place where everyone who is born, given an equal amount of work, has an equal amount of opportunity. And the best way that I know to get there is to make sure that the very basic foundations of human life, being able to get health care when you're sick so that you don't have to go bond yourself to a loan shark to get that medicine, being able to use public transportation to get to a job so that you don't have to bond yourself to somebody to buy a car or to get the transportation that you need to get somewhere. That having access to decent public education so that you don't have to bond yourself to somebody and you don't have to take out huge exorbitant loans or just admit to yourself that you can't send your kids to a decent school because you can't afford it. Having those basic structures in place get us to a place that's more civilized. Because when people look at their lives in America or Canada or England today and they, they tell themselves, oh, I'm a self-made man, I've seen something different. I've seen how this economy works. And I would argue that uh, you're actually a slave-made man. And we should all be pretty fucking ashamed of that. And again, that's me sort of ending the thing on a great big downer because that's what I do. Apparently my job is to kind of fool you into thinking this is going to be funny and then hit you with, you know, the slave trade and things like that that are going to be good, clean fun. Uh, apologize for that. 
Hope maybe it was useful and interesting for you. I don't know. Maybe we lost a lot of people. Any case, I'd like to know what you think. Did you like it? Did you not like it? There's a Discord. You can get the info for joining the Discord wherever you found this podcast. Go let me know. There's comments wherever you found this podcast. Go put some comments there. If you want to let your friends know about it, absolutely. Share this thing. Go give us ratings. All that other stuff. You know, I tell you, the, I, at the end of every episode sounds exactly like this, and I apologize. But if you don't ask for what you want, you don't get it. Or so I've been told. So anyway, that's the show. We'll see you next time.